0: Hello and welcome to Canalcast, a podcast exploring how our charity, the Canal River Trust, helps make life better by water. I'm Lewis Howell and in this series of Canalcast, I'm meeting people throughout the Canal River Trust to open a window onto the work we do. Come with us as we discover how vital and vulnerable our canals are. In today's Canalcast, we're looking at the heritage and history of our canals, the place that our waterways have in the history of our country and why people feel so passionate about protecting them. We're also going to explore why canals are just as relevant to people today as they were in the Industrial Revolution and what we need to do to make sure that canals are here for the next 200 years for future generations to enjoy. First up, it's Naomi Kenton national heritage policy advisor for the canal river trust naomi welcome thank you so much for joining us on canalcast how are you
1: hi lewis thank you very much yes i'm very well thank you are you
0: i'm brilliant i'm brilliant and i'm looking forward so much to this episode because i know i'm going to learn so much from these different conversations so naomi we've mentioned many times before on canalcast that our canals are over 200 years old You know, maybe you can speak a little bit about not only necessarily the history, but even just being able to understand the role that canals play today.
1: We've got a wealth of heritage in our network. So the Canal River Trust are custodians of a huge network of over 2,000 miles of inland waterways and all the heritage assets, the structures, warehouses, bridges, aqueducts, etc., that constituent parts of that network. As custodians, we need to maintain them. And sometimes that requires maintenance and repair, but also sometimes that requires some degree of adaptation as well to meet The operational needs of the network today.
0: What's interesting is, and I'm hoping that you can also shed some light on this for our listeners, Naomi, is that at one point in time, there was a bit of a decline. Why did the canals go into decline?
1: At the height of the revolution, the canals were in their sort of prime and and were heavily used for commercial purposes. But then there was sort of the, the long decline, if you like, because the canal age was relatively short, actually. But then the decline was a rather longer decline, really brought about by the Arrival of the railways, which were much faster, covered greater distances. The canals are are used more today than they ever were in the Industrial Revolution, and that's because there's so much more to it used for for leisure, for exercise, you know, different activities. I think it's been the ability of the canals to adapt and react that really has enabled them to carry on. That is all part of the cultural and heritage value that people place in the canals.
0: We've acknowledged the fact there was a decline. You've also acknowledged that, you know, today we see some amazing things being able to happen on the waterways and some very diverse uses. However, what what actually happened in order for, you know, some of those improvements to be able to happen?
1: Large parts of the canal network are covered by national designations. That protection enables us to manage and enjoy and celebrate England's waterways and all the buildings and structures that form part of that. But also, we've got a degree of protection around the setting of these heritage assets, which enables us to have a degree of control over the any development that's happening within the setting of these heritage assets. We're trying to conserve and manage our shared heritage, our national heritage. For today's society but also for future generations coming after us
0: you know what does the heritage team at the canal river trust actually do you know how is it that you're going about helping to protect the history of our waterways maybe give us a little bit of an insight into sort of you know the the day in the life let's say for the the heritage team
1: okay yeah well first off i like to make the point really when i'm asked this sort of question i like to make the point that actually we're all custodians of the historic waterway. So arguably, we've all got responsibility to um, help conserve and manage this national heritage. But that said, there is a dedicated team of heritage advisors who are specifically tasked with managing the heritage. So we have a team of nine heritage advisors embedded within the regions, and they provide specialist advice. So they work with colleagues in asset management, our, our engineering colleagues, our operational colleagues. And if there's proposals to carry out repairs or alterations, the heritage advisors provide advice right at the outset, the design stage and then throughout. We also have two national advisors to provide advice on policy and technical matters and then we have the cultural heritage advisory committee and that provides additional support and strategic guidance when required but also provides some accountability for the trust.
0: Well, let's be a bit braggadocious, Naomi, you know, like there's some achievements that I think we should also talk about. But one thing that I will share from one of the things that I've learned is that actually we went from having approximately 125 assets that were on the Heritage at Risk Register back in 2004. And I'm told that we've only got one today. That is a massive achievement for your team, if I'm correct with those figures.
1: Yeah, we have made real strides trying to get the number of assets on the Heritage at Risk Register down and we have brought that number right down and and that is all you know credit to the trust in terms of prioritizing resources to tackle those difficult buildings and structures that are on the list. At the moment we've just got one remaining asset on that statutory list and we are working to try and get that one off the list. So that one specifically is Tanwell Flight Locks and that's on the Grand Union Canal and that's a scheduled monument so very high, high uh, sign- heritage significance. But the trust is working with Hanwell Lock's partnership to try and address the issues there. But we had great success at getting the Roundhouse in Birmingham off the list. So that's a grade two star listed building and, and that's a partnership scheme with the National Trust. Another recent success was at Whaley Bridge, the transshipment warehouse there on the Peak Forest Canal, also grade two star listed. Whilst the trust is absolutely committed to carrying out repairs to our heritage assets, we can't tackle them all in one go. It is an aspiration to keep moving these off the list, and we are trying to target resources where we can. But we, I think, we need to celebrate the success of getting them, uh, reducing the numbers right down on the statutory list, and keep keep up the good work to try and tackle the ones on the local authority list.
0: So, Naomi, look, the fact of the matter is, the trust has a lot of different assets that is seeking to, you know, go about protecting and conserving. But when making decisions about the future of an asset. You know, what does that look like?
1: It is very challenging for the Trust with such an extensive network to be managing and looking after. And at times, difficult decisions need to be made. For instance, we would uh, look to try and maintain assets in their operational state, as they were originally intended to do, I suppose, as a that would be the preference. But if an asset falls into or falls out of operational use, we would seek to try and look at repurposing that asset for an alternative use. So if it has a particular value or exceptional value, then the the trust would look to maintain or retain it within our portfolio. But where you've got, say, former workers' cottages or or lockkeeper's cottage, it could be transferred to an alternative owner if the property is a listed building – the new owner would still be bound by the legislation and planning controls in the same way that the Trust is. So there's a degree of protection there afforded to that property.
0: Thanks, Naomi. Great to hear about the history of canals and living heritage today. Let's now hear from Principal Architect and Conservation Specialist at the Canal and River Trust. Pete Chowns. Pete, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing, Pete, man?
2: Very well, thanks, Lewis. Yourself?
0: Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Excited to be able to have the conversation because I know our listeners are going to be super intrigued. So, Pete, we've been hearing a lot there from Naomi that, you know, the Canal and River Trust is very much the custodian of our 200 years of canal heritage. But how does that actually work in practice? You know, like, what, what do we protect? What do we restore? And what's your role in making all of that happen?
2: Well, Lewis, uh, as you probably know, the Canal and River Trust was formed as a charity in 2012, um, taking over from what was British Waterways. And one of its principal charitable responsibilities is to hold the canals in trust for the nation forever. So as you can see, we have this obligation to protect and conserve the nation's canal heritage for future generations. Now, as part of that transfer, we received the assets and land holdings of British Waterways. And many of those assets went into what is now known as Infrastructure Trust, And basically, that includes everything necessary for the ongoing operation of the canal network. So the canal itself, the towing path, locks, bridges, tunnels, etc. You know, everything that makes it accessible for our users, be they boaters, anglers, walkers or cyclists. And many of these assets, such as, for instance, Ponca Aqueduct or Anderton Boat Lift, Foxton Locks, these have huge heritage significance and these will remain in our care forever. But alongside that fundamental canal infrastructure, um, the Canal and River Trust also inherited a lot of property that's not now considered necessary, if you like, to the operation of the canal. So that's buildings like warehouses and canal cottages, for instance. And again, while some of these have high heritage significance to the waterways, such as Beach House at Ellesmere or the warehouses in London Docklands, they normally have some level of statutory designation afforded to them, which gives them a certain amount of protection. Some of it, as is already explained, was in pretty poor state, and we spent a long time and a considerable amount of money restoring that heritage at risk, as it's called. And some of it we need to find new uses for, reinvent it, if you like. And some of it has potential to be redeveloped or taken on by others, maybe in a partnership with ourselves. But some of it we do have freedom to dispose of, if it's considered following a very robust internal process, that disposal wouldn't cause undue harm to the property as a result of that sale. And if it makes financial sense, uh, because as a charity we have this obligation to manage our assets commercially. Um, And it's my job as the Canal and River Trust accredited conservation architect to make sure that when we do restore a building or develop it, uh, develop some land, that we do so in a way that respects both the heritage of that specific site, but also the role it has played in the development of the canal network.
0: Mm, I think this is so insightful, you know, Pete, because what I'm getting from a lot of these conversations is that there's this subtle balance between trying to, you know, maintain and celebrate our heritage for all to enjoy, whilst also seeking to go about being able to make good use of different aspects of our assets in the present day. Pete, on that note then, tell us about some of the different ways that you're actually able to restore buildings and ensure that they have long-term future.
2: Okay, Lewis. I mean, uh, yeah, well, I'll I'll give you some examples if you like. So firstly, I'm I'm really pleased with the work we've uh, recently completed at the Roundhouse in Birmingham. Um, this is a wonderful Grade two star-listed horseshoe-shaped building in Ladywood, which is just uh, west of Birmingham city centre. It was originally built as a municipal works depot, and we actually acquired it relatively late. But it was where the horses were stabled that would transport stone that had been brought in by canal around the rest of the city to build new roads it largely become unused but now in partnership with the national trust we've reinvented it as a fantastic new destination hub for promoting waterway based activities such as canoeing paddleboarding guided uh, canal walks as well as having a cafe there and new offices for the Canal and River Trust and the National Trust right in the heart of Birmingham. And by reimagining what the building could be and making alterations to the building, which still maintain its original presence, if you like, and integrity, we've found a sustainable long term use that repurposes the building and makes it publicly accessible whilst also taking it off the Heritage at Risk Register. At Bulbourne Yard near Tring in Hertfordshire, We own a collection of historic workshop buildings, which for over 200 years played a vital role as a canal maintenance yard and workshop, where originally lock gates were manufactured for the Southern Grand Union Canal. Following a a rationalisation of our lock gate manufacturing process, the site became redundant. We couldn't really find a sustainable alternative use for those buildings, many of which, again, are grade two listed. So we formed a joint venture partnership through the Trust's uh, H2O Urban Delivery Vehicle to develop the site, converting those warehouses into apartments and building some further new homes, as well as retaining a Canal and River Trust operational yard uh, as part of the site. As such, we've not only created 25 new homes, but also provided, provided a sustainable future for those listed properties, uh, which have been respectfully converted and retained many of their original features, such as the original forge, and we've you know, therefore saved those buildings for future generations to enjoy. Um, similarly, at Finsley Gate in Burnley, this was another formal canal yard on the Leeds and Liverpool Canal. The Canal and River Trust were struggling to find viable use for the site, which contained a listed house, warehouse and forge again, and it was falling into disrepair. But with various grant funding, we've been able to conserve the buildings and convert them into an asset for the local community, which not only brings the history of the site to life, but also gives local people access to the water through boat trips, canoeing and so on. And we've also managed to find a commercial tenant for the warehouse building who now runs it as a water water-safe Cafe bar, which gives it a sustainable future commercially as well. And although it's slightly different perhaps at, at Brentford Lock, which is where the Grand Union Canal meets the Thames, we've been rede- redeveloping through our joint venture Waterside Places a large run-down former industrial site next to the canal, providing not only new homes, but also improved mooring facilities for boaters and better towpaths and landscaped areas for the local people to enjoy. There are currently some large transshipment warehouses that uh, extend over the the towpath and give this kind of unique and prominent feature of the site, although I have to say it's not particularly pleasant to walk through them at the moment. But we've managed to integrate the frame of one of those warehouses into the scheme, and that creates, again, this unique waterside public garden space, but also retains their sort of historic sense of presence, if you like, in views along the canal.
0: Oh, 100%. And I think we must never overlook the fact that those particular um sites where you've managed to maintain some of the previous infrastructure that existed there buildings that existed there etc you know you, everybody's going to have a subjective view as to you know whether they are as pleasing on the eye versus others regardless though what's brilliant is the fact that we're always thinking about how we can go about making use of space effectively and most importantly who is going to benefit from the presence of you know, particular um, assets at those particular sites. So it's amazing. Now, they all sound like amazing places, Pete, but mm-hmm. what about the core infrastructure itself? You know, the locks, the bridges, so on. That. How do you go about actually protecting structures like these when they're still being used every single day?
2: Well obviously those uh, that have a formal designation such as listing, they've got legal protection so we have to protect those in accordance with the legal framework for England and Wales as well as our own heritage standards and that often means using traditional materials uh, and methods and saving as much of the original material as possible. We also have to have some knowledge if you like of material physics as these traditional materials like lime, um, unlike the cement based materials they're able to accommodate a certain amount of movement without cracking and that can be a real advantage. However, we do have to strike a balance between uh, maintaining historical integrity and authenticity against modern practicality, if you like. So, for instance, with health and safety requirements such as uh, signage or lock ladders, we have to ensure that the need for providing a safe environment for all our users is carefully balanced against retaining that sense of historic integrity that's so important to many people. So clearly user safety is vital and we have to ensure that our visitors go home safely. Uh, so we have to find appropriate and sometimes ingenious solutions to problems that minimise the impact upon the historic fabric and appearance. But, you know, this is, can be relatively simple. So such as changing the sign colour of uh, a seal warning sign on, on a lock gate.
0: Mm, no, definitely. It's such a subtle, subtle difference. But actually I can imagine that it does make a tremendous impact in terms of when you think about who's using it. And for what purpose and at what time and all of that, definitely. But isn't that becoming even more difficult to do though? You know, especially because canals are, from what I understand, becoming even more busy, which is a good thing for the trust, right? You know, we want more people out on the canals. We want more boaters, we want more everything. But presumably you do have to factor in both the fact that they are becoming more busy and the impact of the climate.
2: Absolutely. And as you say, the the day-to-day use of canals is increasing as the network seems to become ever more popular. So we do have to take this into account and make appropriate choices. Uh, But I think it's a great testament to that early Victorian engineering that so many of our waterway structures are still standing today. But you're right, Lewis, climate change does appear to be having an impact. And we're seeing far greater stresses on our historic infrastructure as a result. Most people will probably know about Todbrook Reservoir, but Last year, we also suffered a catastrophic failure at a Grade 2 listed figure of three locks, which is on the Calder and hebel uh, navigation, when the river Calder overtopped during, I think it was Storm Kiara, and washed away the central island and spillway of one of the locks. And as a result of this event, and, you know, consideration of the likelihood that this might happen again, we made the decision to rebuild the island in reinforced concrete and face it with masonry to replicate the original appearance whilst also building a much larger spillway to accommodate a greater flow in the future. And of course, uh, back in the Boxing Day floods of uh, 2015, um, the road bridge in Elland, which incidentally spans the same canal, that collapsed and required significant rebuilding. Obviously, you know, this had a profound effect not only on canal users, but also on the local community. And it was agreed with the statutory authorities that it would be best both to future-proof the design and to speed up placement, if you like, by creating a concrete saddle bridge, faced in stone to recreate the appearance of the original bridge. Obviously this brings with it certain philosophical questions if you like about whether you should create a facsimile rather of a historic bridge or design something completely modern and different to highlight that it is no longer that original stone structure. But these are the sort of questions that we're considering throughout the development of the project. So where we can uh, and we consider it appropriate and it won't cause considerable harm to the significance or understanding of the structure, we do try and consider future resilience, and sometimes, you know, compromises have to be sought. But I hope that more often than not, we strike the right balance.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I appreciate the fact that you do have to at times find compromises, but I think the fact of the matter is, if you were to look at all of the work that you and your team are doing, not only are the trust grateful, but I can imagine all of our users, all of the people who are using the canals on the waterways in different ways for different purposes, they're going to be massively grateful for the fact that you are going about being able to conserve, and I would argue improve, this phenomenal asset that exists within so many communities across our country. So, you know, I am sure I speak on behalf of everyone when I thank you, you and your team for all of the amazing work that you're doing. So amazing. Thank you so much, Pete. Thanks for explaining exactly how we continue to reinvent and reimagine our heritage. Now, let's hear from Graham Boxer. Head of Collections and Archive at the Canal and River Trust. Graham, good to have you here, man. Hi, Lewis. It's great to be here. I appreciate you joining us for Canal Canalcast. So, Graham, as someone who's immersed in the history of canals, where did the fascination start for you? And why does canal history continue to have a hold over you today?
3: So I think my passion, if you like, is about what was it like for people living in the past.
0: And the canals is an area
3: of that history which we do tend to forget. And I think it's good to try and get across not just what that purpose was and how it sort of accelerated the Industrial Revolution, but also what a fantastic resource from a heritage and a well-being point of view we actually have on our doorstep.
0: It's amazing. So tell us about, you know, maybe some of your favourite places or even periods within history that, you know, you wish you'd have been alive to see.
3: I think it could be all of them, to tell you the truth, Lewis. I have something uh, which I like about sort of forgotten history. What are the hidden places which you can uncover and discover? People will know Anderton, for example, the boat lift, which is known as the cathedral of the canals. People will know Ponte Cassilti Aqueduct in North Wales, which is a tremendous feat. People, Other people may not know so much places like Barton Bridge. Barton is just outside Manchester, and it was where the Bridgewater Canal first went across the River Irwell, and they built an aqueduct in the 1760s to carry that. And actually, at the time, that was quite unique to have a bridge carrying water over water And that must have been tremendous to see if you hadn't seen anything like that before. So I think there are a number of different places and and your listeners to this podcast might actually have their own favourite place like that. One of mine, however, I think would have to be Ellesmere Port in Cheshire. That is one of the largest transshipment docks for boats, Carrying cargo and transshipping it into narrow boats to go into the Midlands before the seventeen nineties there was nothing there at all, and it was sighted as I say in Cheshire on the banks of the Mersey and The reason it was there was because of that connection to Liverpool, Liverpool in the eighteen hundreds or the seventeen and eighteen hundreds I should say was starting to burgeon as a major sort of economic port for dealing all around the world. And actually, by establishing Ellesmere Port, which was first known as Whitby Docks, in that location, they were able to get cargo in and out of the industrial midlands a lot easier than they could before. And that's what led to its growth. And I think over the years, it sort of went through a downside and became run down with the post-industrial period until it was sort of rescued by volunteers who wanted to save the site for what it was, but also create a museum about life on the
0: waterways. That is amazing. Beyond what you've mentioned, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about some of the collections, archives and other attractions that the Canal and River Trust cares for. There are a number of different things that people can be going to see up and down the country that they probably have overlooked. So what could we come and see?
3: Well, that's absolutely right, Lewis. I mean, the canals could be seen as a museum in their own right. The Canal and River Trust are responsible for the largest and most comprehensive collection of objects that relate to the history of the canals over the last 250-300 years and we have some fantastic things in that collection. We, we have boats, we also have social history items, we have engineering items, we have painted ware, and altogether this collection is so important that the Arts Council have designated it as of national significance. It tells that part of the story about the Industrial Revolution, which perhaps isn't told anywhere else. People can pick up on strands of this story at any of our attractions around the Canal Network, particularly at the National Waterways Museum at Ellesmere Paul, our sister branch at Gloucester, again, the National Waterways Museum, Gloucester, and then we have a smaller museum called the Canal Museum in Stoke Bruin in the Midland. You can find something which will, you know... Excite and interest
0: and entertain you about the history of the canals. Ah, oh, this is tremendous. This is, and you've given us, you know, three very specific locations where there's a lot going on as well. You mentioned the Waterway Archive. You know, what kinds of objects and artifacts are actually in the archive and how do we access it?
3: There's the museums which have the object, but there's the archives which has the records, the paper documents, the photographs. The films and they are useful for research. Those documents are important because they give you an insight into what was happening at the time. They tell that story, and we have something like 200,000 items in the archive, we're still trying to catalogue it all so that we can make it accessible to people. And we have lots of people doing research on it. They might be exploring the history of a particular canal. They might be doing some restoration work on one of the locks, for example. Some of our own engineers use our archives all the time to make sure they've got all the Information right that they need. We have people doing family history research because they might come from a boating family in the past. So, an archive is really useful for exploring and understanding the past and actually telling us a bit about who we are today. So, the objects, if you like, the touchstones to the past. There's a boat called Mendip and it was used by a boatman called Charlie Atkins in about the early 20th century, up to the mid 20th century. And Charlie Atkins, he got the name, nickname Chocolate Charlie. And the reason he got that is because he used Mendip to carry chocolate crumb from Ellesmere Port down to Birmingham, down to Bourneville, where it was turned into chocolate to eat. And, you know, people came to know him as he traveled up and down the canal carrying this chocolate crumb. That's real people. And we can get close to those real people from the past through the objects we have left. And that's why I think, you know, objects, material culture, are really important as touchstones to reaching back to the past.
0: I would have never known about Chocolate Charlie, you know what I'm saying, if it wasn't for this conversation. But I've heard that there were some other real characters that had some exciting things going on within the canal's history as well. You know, I heard about someone called Eileen with a diary, do you know what I mean? Maybe talk to us a bit about that, Graham.
3: Eileen Burke and her friend, they travelled around the canal network in the 1960s. Um, Whilst her friend uh, did most of the steering and pottering around, if you like, as you do on canal boats, Eileen kept a diary and she decorated her diary with lovely watercolour sketches of where she was at that particular time at that day and this was during the late 60s early 70s and we now have that diary in our archive and it's a tremendous record of two people who were traveling in the canals at that time and really enjoying them so people can go to the canal and river trust website look up the waterways archive online and discover some of these old images for themselves
0: So tell me about some of those challenges that come with trying to care for canal heritage within the collections that we have at the Trust, you know, Graham, how do you make sure that we preserve that history for the next generation to enjoy?
3: It's very difficult. It's challenging. I mean, if you think about objects and things It's natural that they slowly decay with time and rot away and fall apart, especially organic items. And what museums, all museums are trying to do is to preserve those objects in the best condition they can so that others and future generations can enjoy them and explore them and build on the research we have already done. We have to balance out a number of different challenging aspects. How do preserve the collection as long as possible which boats are really historically important that we have to take out of the water to look after better which boats are perhaps aren't so important but would help us tell the story about the canals which can stay in the water and people can go on them and explore them and enjoy them.
0: That level of decision making is key because now you're balancing story and strategy. What support could people be providing? What is, you know, people being able to ensure that your team has the resource needed in order to be able to do this phenomenal work? How can people support?
3: Well, I, I think it would be great for people to to join the Canal and River Trust, and that would help us. It would be great for people to visit our museum and attractions. And we actually also use a lot of volunteers. We have some really good volunteers. We are very welcoming of large donations that help us preserve these uh, really important objects for the future. Thanks, Brian.
0: It's wonderful to know that our canal archives are in such good hands. But what does the day-to-day work of a Canal & River Trust heritage manager involve? To find out, Canalcast got in touch with heritage and environment manager for Wales and Southwest, Morgan Cowles. Morgan, good to talk to you. How are you?
4: Hey, Lewis. Yeah, really good, thanks. Yeah, how are you?
0: I'm great. So, Morgan, let's start here. You know, what is it that we have to do to ensure that we're not jeopardising the heritage and the history of the canals?
4: Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. You know, a lot of what we do is about that is about looking at uh, complex kind of proposals and saying, okay, how's the best way to deliver this? And of course, one of the things we factor in is, as you've said there, you know, the historic environment is like an irreplaceable resource, you know, it's once that's lost, it's lost, you can't replace it. So, we try to act as carefully and with as much consideration as we can to conserve that. And somebody once said, uh, you know, we're only trustees for those who come after us. And, and that's a real kind of central tenant across everything that, that we do, you know, is that um, we're doing what we can today to help secure this living heritage, really. For the future, I mean, obviously, a lot of what we look after in terms of the actual engineering structures were, you know, man-made structures. But over time, over 200 years, nature's taken uh, taken hold, you know, and uh, they're, they're now also really important ecosystems for wildlife. So in terms of conserving the heritage, we've got a difficult balance to strike because obviously we want to minimise the impact on the operation of the network, you know, the boats need to keep moving and people need to keep access for all. But at the same time, be careful that we don't impinge on any ecology. And really importantly, then, we're custodians of one of the largest historic building collections in in England and Wales.
0: Now, of course, definitely. Let's let's talk a little bit more about where we are now you know your patch in in the southwestern wales you know tell us a little bit about some of the history and heritage that does exist here
4: so we've got canals like the the kennet and avon canal stretching from reading in the east across to bath in the west that's sort of semi-rural and passing through connecting urban spaces and then we've got sort of the mon and brett canal over in Wales, which is one of my personal (laughs) favourites. It's our favourites. But but the scenic nature of that is so stunning. We've got a large number of listed buildings. I'm kind of looking after over 300 listed buildings, 12 scheduled ancient monuments, across three World Heritage sites, so lots of sort of layers of legal protection, yeah. In addition to that, then, the Trust has got its own heritage standard, which seeks to give the other undesignated assets, that they might not be protected under the law, a similar kind of degree of beneficial protection. And that's about ensuring that we don't just focus on what's legally our legal obligations. We're going above and beyond that.
0: I wanted to touch on something that I heard about as it relates to Kennet and Avon. So I've heard that Kennet and Avon was part of the Line Blue Defences, which was there. As part of World War II. So it was there to ensure that we didn't necessarily have as much invasion from forces crossing the Channel during World War II. Like, you know, tell me a bit more about that. This is
4: an interesting part of the history, and the KA has got layers of history. In fact, all of the heritage waterways, all of the all of the network has layers of history, I think it's fair to say. And so the, the KA, you know, from, from its original construction in, in 1800. Found itself with a kind of a new use <laughs> being imposed on it in in 1940, which was around concerns for what would happen if Britain w- was invaded. You know, the General Headquarters uh, stop line is uh, a network actually of lines. So the Kennet and Avon is, is one, the blue line, and and then that stretches to the west to Bradford and Avon, that connects them with the green line, which kind of encircled Bristol, roughly. These defensive lines were populated by these pillboxes all the way along its length. And the K&A has got a high number of these. I'm actually working on a project at the moment with some volunteers coming up this later on this summer on the Gloucester and Sharpness. We're converting that to a, a bat hostel. Caves, obviously a good place for bats to live. And the World War II pillboxes are quite similar. And obviously we've got some work to do to ensure that we interpret these features in the landscape so that people who are making their way along the towpath can understand, you know, what are these things that we keep seeing uh, along our journey? So yeah, they're an interesting layer of the story.
0: So Morgan, let's be honest, one of the things that everybody in the world either is talking about or should be talking about is the climate crisis, right? You know, we are aware of the fact that due to climate change, everything within our physical environment is going to have to become more resilient, more sustainable, and that requires improvements in different places. So when you consider the fact that the Trust is doing amazing work to protect our history, conserve as much of the tradition yeah, that has existed on the waterways for a long time, how do we also balance that with the fact that we do need to make improvements?
4: Yeah, sure. It's a really, really good question, Lewis. And right at the beginning of our chat, you know, we, we spoke about the difficulty of striking an appropriate balance you know resilience is a really difficult one because of course we've got key structures that cannot absorb a high degree of change you know and then it's about understanding on that profile where can this structure or these structures where could they absorb a degree of change that is not affecting what's special about them. Each of these will be a case by case. You know, there won't be a one size fits all for this. And so it's going to be a very challenging and strategic piece of work. This week, I'm out on the Kennet and Avon this week with um, Dundas Aqueduct, which is kind of the jewel in the crown. it's been called, an architectural gem, a classically designed masterpiece on a monumental scale designed by John Rennie. We discovered in a survey I did back in March, at the end of the winter, that looking at some of the carved detail on the cornices, that kind of the sticky out bits that are with all the sort of the fancy engravings and things like that, on some of those actually got signs of fractures. So we had a rope access team to come in and have a look at it and took some close-ups for me. And we've had a look at that. And now we're back there this week with a, a specialist rope abseil team, and we're going to use modern techniques. To carry out a very discreet repair i kind of um, liken it maybe to like keyhole surgery or something like that you know so you, you won't know that we've been there so that the historic stone where it's cracked doesn't fracture and fall and obviously at 40 feet up a piece of that coming down you know is, is a is a serious health and safety kind of matter you know so another one that only did a couple of weeks back was working with the volunteers to remove graffiti So, yeah, over the last 12 months, we've seen quite an increase in graffiti incidents and some of them to some of our most special listed structures. And one of these is uh, Sydney Gardens in Bath, which is right in the heart of the World Heritage Site of Georgian Bath. I've been working with a group of local volunteers on a kind of campaign, a graffiti removal campaign, actually. And we're working with one of the country's leading Specialist, actually, they did a great job of this uh, graffiti removal. In the process of which was quite interesting, they discovered once they've removed a lot of the sort of aerosol paint and stuff off the stonework, we discovered when we looked a bit more closely quite a lot of old early uh, 19th century graffiti, like carved in. People must have spent so much time carving in their initials. And it's all done very, very tidy and proper kind of Roman (laughs) type font. We very carefully kind of worked around that and also corded that. And I think the earliest one we found was from 1821. It's not just about returning it to, yeah, what was it like when it was first built? You know, it needs to look brand new all the time. Yeah, it's about accepting that over time there's a degree of change, you know. There's only one thing that's inevitable in life, and that's change. So the question is, you know, how do we best manage that carefully and sensitively so that what's special about these places, what we see about them now, what people feel is special about them, is conserve for others
0: no definitely I think you're right the only thing constant in life is definitely change this has been such an insightful conversation Morgan honestly I appreciate it so much I genuinely do feel I'm one of those trustees now as well you know entrusted with ensuring that our canals and waterways can add value and I really appreciate the generations to come getting them to appreciate what has come before so thank you so much for joining us on Canalcast today Morgan
4: you're very welcome Lewis
0: thanks to Morgan Graham, Pete, and Naomi there for explaining why caring for the past of our canals is so important to their future. And if you want to learn more about canal history and how the Canal River Trust cares for our heritage, search history on the Canal River Trust website or try places to visit and find details of our museums and attractions, all of which are well worth a visit this summer. Tune in to Canalcast again next time. But until then, why not spend a little more time by water?